0: Will you please make your way back to your seats? We're going to gather now for the preaching of God's Word. Well, it truly is a rich joy to be with you this morning and to be able to open the Word of God together. Our text for this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, and we're going to be in chapter 59. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, that will be our passage of focus here together this morning. The man and his wife enjoyed a rich relationship with their loving master, whom they gladly worked for and enjoyed fellowship with. They looked forward to the days when their master would visit them and walk with them, showering them with his kindness as they freely obeyed him and delighted to be with him. But one day, things changed. The master went into the garden looking for the man and his wife, but they were nowhere to be found. They hid themselves from their master's presence. See, earlier that day, the people disobeyed their master for the very first time. The master had given them the entire garden to cultivate and enjoy, but he commanded them not to eat of one single tree in the midst of the garden because doing so would surely invoke havoc in their world. The deceiver showed up that day and lured the man and his wife into willful rebellion against their loving master, and they were quite understandably ashamed of what they had done. So the next time they heard God's voice calling out for them, Adam and Eve hid themselves from him. And this is how it's been ever since. Sin makes us hide from ourselves, from each other, and from God. It's why your children lie and blame their siblings for something they did wrong. It's why crime thrives at night amidst darkness. It's why we binge ourselves on entertainment to numb the sickness in our souls. It's why we come to church with a smile on our face and and, and say when someone asks us how we've been, doing good while trying to suppress with every ounce of human energy our deep-down despair over the week's struggles. Sin is like mold. It grows and festers in darkness as it slowly disintegrates its prey. And yet, through his word, God is still calling out to us. Certain portions of Scripture have a way of plunging in to the depths of our sin-sick souls, bringing to light the evils in every dark corner of our hearts. Isaiah 59 is one of those passages. A close look at it is like coming under the surgeon's scalpel. It is sharp and painful, and yet it promises hope and healing with a fresh look at our loving Lord's response to our sin. I urge you to enter into the depths of Isaiah 59 with me. That cruel deceiver will tempt you to check out from this sermon, to ignore the darkness of sin that will be exposed. But it's only against the darkest of night skies that we recognize how bright the stars truly are. So as we look to Isaiah 59 together, let us look firmly and honestly at the darkness of our sin. And then let us rejoice exceedingly at the brightness of Christ, penetrating through the darkness to conquer our sin and revive our weary souls. Let's hear from God together as we turn now to his word in Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice and wondered that there was no man to intercede, Then, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. So he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, He will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Title of the message this morning is Sin's Great Ruin and Yahweh's Greater Redemption. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we are amazed that you would give us your words that though we have all turned and rebelled against you Lord you would speak to us through your word and you would come to us through the word incarnate Jesus Christ the Redeemer I pray Lord as we look at this passage that you would give us a spirit of attentiveness a spirit of honesty a spirit of confession that we might know the depths of our sin, that we might acknowledge the depths of our sin, but that we might rejoice exceedingly at the depths of what you have conquered to save us from that sin. Lord, help us to see Jesus here in Isaiah 59 and help us to rejoice in him. And God, I pray that all of our souls would be uplifted, would be encouraged, and would be driven to repentance before our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this book, Bearing His Name, the prophet Isaiah is sent by God to prophesy in Jerusalem and warn the people of Judah of their impending judgment for their sin. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, was divided. The northern kingdom of Israel fell siege to the powerful Assyrian army, and now Isaiah was commissioned to warn Judah, the southern kingdom, of its similar fate due to its own rebellion and idolatry against God. This 66 chapter book of Isaiah is traditionally divided into three sections. Chapters 1 through 39 largely warn of judgment, and yet God is faithful to his promise. As you know from our current sermon series, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture, the ultimate redemption of, of, of the people through God's Messiah is foreshadowed throughout the entire Old Testament. And so chapters 40 to 55 contain clear, clear, and hopeful prophecy for the Israelites of their coming Messiah who will defeat their enemies and redeem their sin through his own suffering. And then as if to answer the classic question, how shall we then live? Chapters 56 to 66 instruct Israel how to live lightly or how to live rightly in light of redemption. So chapter 59 is here in this last section of the book of Isaiah. And these three themes of judgment, redemption, and instruction repeat to different degrees throughout the entire book. And so here in Isaiah 59, the themes of judgment and redemption are in full view as a springboard for right living, which will be highlighted soon after. And in order to understand Isaiah 59, we must recognize that in Isaiah 58, the prophet indicts Israel for their religiosity with no warm affections for the Lord in their hearts. God is not pleased by his people going through the religious routines with their hands without true love for him in their hearts. This type of attitude is the outworking of Israel's idolatry, and it is deserving of God's judgment. Their sin is deep. Their penalty is deserved. And they are desperate for deliverance. Frustrated, in a sense, with God's displeasure. That's where we pick up in Isaiah 59. In a series of three prophetic sections, Isaiah 59 echoes the resounding point that sin's ruin is great, but Yahweh's redemption is greater. Sin's ruin is great, but Yahweh's redemption is so much greater. The first section, verses 1 through 8, is the accusation against sin. Second, verses 9 to 15a, is the confession of sin. And third, 15b to 21, is the redemption over sin. The Holy Spirit, through Isaiah, challenges us in this passage to look hard at Israel's sin and our sin and see how it ruins us and others. And then he calls us to turn our eyes upward and see against the backdrop of such ruinous sin just how great it is the Lord's redemption truly is. Sin's ruin is great, but Yahweh's redemption is greater. With that being said, let's look to the first section, verses one through eight, the accusation against sin. Well, this passage begins with Isaiah, in a sense, speaking on behalf of God, accusing the Israelites of their rebellion against him. Chapter 58's indictment against Israel's hypocrisy leaves them frustrated, asking, why do our prayers go unanswered? Why does God not respond to us? The answer implied in chapter 58 is that it is because as the people are, as Jesus called out the Pharisees in Matthew 23, like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. God is displeased with his people when they honor him with their lips while their hearts are far from him. The opening lines of Isaiah 59 expand on that question. Verses 1 and 2 answer the question, making the point that it is not any fault of God as to why he's not answering their prayers or why they're not finding deliverance. It is important to observe that Isaiah opens this accusation using God's covenant name, Yahweh, which is referred to by the all-caps Lord in our English bible. It's not Yahweh's fault Israel that your prayers are going unanswered. It's not Yahweh's fault that you're not finding deliverance. He's your covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and his hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The word save here is literally has a sense of causation to it. In other words, Isaiah is saying that Yahweh is absolutely able to bring salvation and deliverance to Israel and his ear is absolutely able to hear. The fact that their prayers are going unanswered is in no part due to the inability of God. Think about it. The people are frustrated over the fact that they're not finding deliverance from God and that he's not hearing their prayers. So they think. There's only two parties here in this dispute, Yahweh and Israel. So whose fault is it? Why are they not finding help from Yahweh? Well, verse 1 eliminates any imaginable fault on God's part. And verse 2 clarifies who is entirely at fault here. Isaiah rightly accuses the people saying, it is your iniquities that have separated you from God. Here's a sense of causation again. The people's iniquities have caused the separation between them and their God and their sins have caused his face, his presence to be hidden from them. Isaiah is expounding on themes that have persisted throughout the entire book, beginning in the very first chapter when God called them a people laden with iniquity. They are laden with iniquity to the point that their unjust hypocrisy has driven a wedge between themselves and God, and their sins have caused his presence to be hidden from them. One commentator noted that the only place this phrase separation comes up up elsewhere in Scripture is in Genesis 1-6, speaking of God separating the heavens from the earth in creation so that there is no commingling of the two. The people's transgressions, their iniquity, has caused complete separation between them and God. And so we see very clearly here that the problem in man's relationship with God is not the inability of God, but the iniquity of man. The problem in man's relationship with God is not the inability of God, but it's the iniquity of man. There is a fundamental rift in the relationship between the sinful man and the holy God, and it is 100% man's fault. This is true for, for you and I just as much as it is true for Israel. The problem in our relationship with God is not his inability, but it's our iniquity. It's true of all of mankind. Everyone and everything was created by God and for God, and it's our iniquities that drive him away and cause this diff, this deep rift in our relationship with With Yahweh, in this relationship, there is only one offending party, and it's not God. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel the weight of this rift. Maybe you're frustrated with God. You come to church week after week, trying to do everything just right. And yet you feel that he is distant from you. And yet on the inside, you know that your heart is far from him. God makes it very clear that he is not pleased with such a heart posture. But if you are feeling convicted over that, there's good news for you, which he announces later on in this passage. And if you are currently near to the Lord, warm in your affections for him, I encourage you to remember when you were far off. Praise God that these indictments may not be true of you now, but remember when they were. It will give you mercy for those who are far off and it will strengthen your love and joy ever deeper in your Savior as you remember the deep rift that he conquered to save you. Verse 3 continues to diagnose the people's desperate condition. Notice how Isaiah sharpens the accusation here. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips speak lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. The idea of hands refers to the outward actions, while lips refers to words and inward thoughts. The word translated mutters here is actually the same word used elsewhere in scripture, often translated as meditates. And the sharpening from hands to fingers and lips to tongue shows us just how deep this condition really is. From head to toe, from body to soul, outwardly, inwardly, every single Fiber of our being is laden with sin. The surround sound aspect of Hebrew poetry is clear in just the first two verses: iniquity, sin, defiled lies, wickedness. See, Scripture diagnoses our sinful condition much clearer than we ever could or would for ourselves. This truth is completely countercultural. We live in a society's. We live in a society where the heroes in our movies, which often serve as a cultural thermometer, are the people who learn to find the virtue in themselves. Their problem is on the outside, not on the inside. You see, man tries to reason his way out of sin, diagnosing our problem as injustice done to us from the outside, rather than coming from our own injustice against God on the inside. And the more man tries to reason his way out of sin, the further he drives his separation from God, we must align our thoughts of ourselves with Scripture's diagnosis. If we don't come to grips with just how sinful we really are, then we will never see just how awesome our Savior really is. Verse 4 drives the diagnosis deeper. Sin is so deep in every single one of us that there is not a single person who operates in justice and righteousness the Israelites' lack of justice and righteousness was deeply, deeply dishonoring to Yahweh. He chose them and saved them so that they might act in justice and righteousness as a light to the nations, and yet they operate in lies and vanity. And the imagery here of conceiving mischief and giving birth to iniquity reminds us of James 1.15, that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The imagery that Isaiah uses here makes it very clear that sin has an expansive effect. It begins in our own hearts with our inward thoughts, meditations, and it expands from there into our actions, which creates a society that lacks justice and righteousness. And so God makes it very clear that that in order for society to change, people have to change to their very core. Many people today try to push back against the evil in the world by championing causes of social justice while ignoring the sin festering in their own souls. But as they do, they're simply picking the fruit off of our collective sin while ignoring the root of it, which is the evil that dwells in our very That's the very thing that God has issue over with his people here in this chapter. Verses 5 and 6 sharply illustrate this point. When we focus on outward justice while ignoring inward wickedness, we're deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're doing good, but really we're preparing for ourselves a meal of viper's eggs and clothing ourselves tightly in spiders' webs, feeding on poison and trapping ourselves in self. So as the end of this accusation section makes clear in verses 7 and 8, the sin that starts in all of our human hearts is so problematic, pervasive, that it paves roads of desolation and destruction throughout the society such that people cannot even walk the righteous road. Paul quotes verse 7 of Isaiah 59 in Romans 3, as he argues that no one in all of mankind is righteous. The argument in Romans 3 is the same argument being made here in Isaiah 59. The world is not made up of good people and bad people. There are no truly good people in light of God's righteousness. No one even knows the way of peace, much less walks in it as verse 8 states. The word peace here is the Hebrew shalom, which you may be familiar with. Shalom is the idea of wholeness, peace with no divisions or distortions. When God created the world, he created created it for shalom, peace with him and peace with others. But since the fall, sin has festered in the human heart such that the roads of society are paved with wickedness, and shalom is nowhere to be found. We often hear people saying things like, we just, get, we just have to get him back on the right path or she'll come around. She knows the right way. I think sometimes we're guilty of saying things like this ourselves, especially when it comes to the people who are close to us who are unsafe. Rather than realizing that the fact that our friends and family are hell-bound sinners, which would cause us to weep, pray, and plead with them, we cover it up with quips like, he's just a little off track. He'll come around. Even seemingly harmless phrases like this are a way in which we seek to cover up our sin. This passage makes it very clear. There is no right path outside of Yahweh's redemption in Christ. There is no right path outside of Yahweh's redemption in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us not be people who use cliche phrases in an effort to diminish the harshness of sin. Sin is harsh, and we should recognize and feel its harsh effects. Hell is harsh. And to diminish the harshness of sin in an effort to make the truth more palatable actually distorts the truth rather than clarifying it. The scripture is very clear. If someone is dead in their sin, they do not know the right way. Verse 8 states, the way of peace they do not know. What they need is to agree with God on their sin and turn to him in faith and repentance. We need to urgently and lovingly talk, pray, and plead for them and with them as if we really believe this. The accusation against sin in verses 1 through 8 is very dismal. But it's honest, and it's true. After giving this assessment, Isaiah turns to speak on behalf of the people back to God in verses 9 to 15a, the confession of sin. Now there's some amount of time that passes between verses 8 and 9. The passage shifts from Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, accusing Israel of their sin, to Isaiah speaking on behalf of Israel, confessing their sin to God. True repentance comes when we agree with God about the depths of our sin, which is what the people clearly recognize as they confess their iniquity to God. Isaiah starts off this new section in verse 9 with, therefore, stating that what follows is a response to what was just said. In light of our sinful condition, the people say, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. The actions that follow are descriptors of their condition. Hoping for light, walking in gloom, groping like the blind, stumbling at noon, growling like bears, moaning like doves, knowing our iniquities, transgressing and denying Yahweh, turning back from following God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. These actions are seen here not as one-time events, but rather these are constantly characteristic of the sinful nation. In verse nine, you can almost feel the desperation in the voice of the people. We long earnestly for the light. Behold, darkness. Even the lack of words here sharpen the edge of the point. We long so deeply for the light. Behold, darkness. Commentator Andrew Davis states of this verse that the sea of sin in which we all swarm has drowned all hope for light. Our sin plunges us to the very depths of the ocean of iniquity, and the light is nowhere to be found. We can long for the light all we want, but we will never find it without God bringing the light to us. In verse 10, we see the people's confession That we not only grope like the blind, but our condition is such that we don't even have eyes. And so because of that, all we do is stumble. The phrase at noon is in the twilight makes it clear that this is an all-the-time reality. Stumbling, groping, all the time. Indeed, people in their sin are dead. All that they do is futile. Verse 11, we growl like bears and we moan and moan like doves. The imagery here communicates that our outward words are growling and grumbling. And our inward words, our meditations, our thoughts, our attitudes are muttering and moaning. Anger and hostility on the outside. And complaining and bitterness on the inside. And the lack of words in the second half of verse 11 makes the intensity almost unbearable. Literally it reads, we hope for justice and nothing. For salvation removed from us. You can literally hear the intensity in the very few words. It's, it's hard on the ears. We hope for justice and nothing. For salvation removed from us. Creates an uneasiness in our souls as we listen to it carefully. There's just so much jam-packed into these verses that it wrecks us with just a few words. Have you ever been to the beach caught in the waves at high tide? Feels like every time you, you might just get up to catch your breath, you're pummeled again by another wave deep below the surface. That's kind of the feeling that these verses invoke in our souls regarding our sin. The waves of sin just wreck us again and again and again multiplied before God and testifying against us as verse 12 states, so that our sins almost become our companion. They are with us. We know them. This is not just for the unbeliever. You ever feel this way about your indwelling sin? You ever feel like your indwelling sin has become your companion? Like a parasite in your soul? Painfully, and slowly, eating away at your spiritual vitality and your joy in Christ. I know I do. This passage puts words to what I feel about the sickness of indwelling sin in my own heart. The arrows keep flying. The waves keep pounding. And at times it can seem like there is just no way. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'd probably agree that the confessions of verse 13, denying Yahweh, turning back from following our God, describe the heart posture of our souls much more often than we'd like to admit. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The idea in verse 13 is literally one of turning ourselves back from our God. You might think that some sins aren't that big of a deal. You might be self-deceived that a little unchecked complaining here, a little unconfessed lust there, aren't that much of a problem. Besides, no one else really knows about it anyway. This passage makes it very clear, painfully clear, that each and every sin, big or small, harmless or destructive, humanly speaking, turns us back from God. There's a rift in our relationship with him. And you and I are the guilty party case. Our condition is so sick that it infects not just our own hearts, but society as well. Notice the shift in verse 14 from the sinners themselves to the public squares. Justice is turned back in society, and righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. It's unwelcome in the world. A parallel here between B.C. Israel and 21st century America is stunning. What a proof this is of the way that God's word is ever relevant today. Truth stumbles in the public squares all throughout our society. You are now outcast in the public square if you believe that ma- that marriage is between one man and one woman or that all of human life, including that of the unborn, is sacred and worthy of honor and protection. The courts are now ordering people to get in line with this new moral revolution or face legal action. All the time we hear of Christian groups losing official status at public universities. Some of you in our church have faced challenges and pushback at work or in your communities for your biblical conviction. Indeed, truth has stumbled in the public square. But the stumbling of truth described in the second line is a result of what the first line of verse 14 describes, namely that justice is turned back. Look hard at this phrase. Justice is turned back. It obviously begs the question, turned back by what? What has turned back justice? The answer implied is the people's sin as described in the previous 13 verses. It's as if Israel is saying that justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter because of our sin. It's Israel's sin that has produced such corruption in their society. Now seeing this should cause all of us to look intently at our own hearts and see how each and every one of us contributes to the injustices in society. All too often, Christians are characterized by pointing fingers at truth, stumbling in the public squares while ignoring our part in the matter. Yes, we should be grieved over the lack of truth in society. Yes, we should be vocal about the injustice that we see and do our part to stop it. But may you and I never become Facebook-ranting, finger-pointing, soapbox-preaching people who ignore the reality of sin that festers in our own souls and contributes to the problem. Where in your own life are you tempted to relax the authority of Scripture? Is it, is it in the entertainment you choose to watch? Is it in the way you choose to unwind on the weekends? Is it what you choose to do when you're home alone and finally get some time to yourself? For we're honest with ourselves, we all have areas in our hearts that we are tempted to relax the authority of Scripture. And this passage makes the truth abundantly, once again painfully clear, that the straying of, of truth in society is due to the straying of all of our hearts that expands into the highways And byways of society. So brothers and sisters. Let us be men and women. Who are scrupulous. About the sin in our own hearts. Just as much. And indeed even more. Than we are about the sin in society. The way to reform truth in society. Is to reform our hearts. Day by day. To the righteousness of God. To bring ourselves increasingly under the authority of Scripture, and to let its truth penetrate our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. Truth is lacking in society because sin abounds in individuals, and that counts for all of us. Change has to come from the inside out. Now, if we were to to just stop this sermon here, there would be no hope. It would be bad news for all of us. But there is good news. Change is possible. Praise God. He provides remedy to the steps of sin. We turn now to verse 15b, the redemption over sin. The good news is that Yahweh is not blind to man's sinful condition. We may deceive ourselves, But we can't deceive God. Verse 15b, he saw man's condition. And literally, in Hebrew, it harmed his eyes. It pains him when people act unjustly. In verse 16, he saw that there was not a man to intercede. And literally, he was appalled or astounded. Not only did he wonder, but he wondered with some emotion. There was a force to his wondering. He is appalled that there is no one to intercede. And the word picture here is that there is no one who can reach the righteousness of Yahweh. That separation between man and God due to our sin is deeper than we can ever realize. And there is no way we could cross it for ourselves. And there is no mere man who is able to cross it for us. There is no amount of times that we can read our Bibles... That there is no amount of times that we can come to church. There is no amount of times that we can love our neighbor. There is no amount of times that we can follow all the religious rules that will cross the bridge of our divide for us. We cannot do it ourselves no matter how hard we try. There is no mere man who is able to cross this divide for us. Linger for a moment in the middle of verse 6. Isaiah accused Israel of their deep iniquity. Isaiah, or Israel, agreed with God's assessment of their sin and confessed it to him. And now the focus shifts to Yahweh, who sees the depths of their condition. He is grieved and appalled at it. Marvel at the heart of the God who sees and knows. We may hide our sin from ourselves, from others, but we cannot hide it from God. He sees, he knows. then the question arises, with such a depth of sin, men and women constantly pummeled by its merciless waves, driven under its weight, groping around, blind to the light, what is God going to do? Then his own arm brought him salvation. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. In verse 16a, the Hebrew sense is that there was no man who could cause intercession. And so Yahweh's response is that his own arm accomplished salvation and deliverance for his people. Our condition rendered us completely unable to accomplish any intercession At all, and in God's abundant mercy, the wondrous mercy of Yahweh, his own arm accomplished salvation. His power accomplished salvation and his righteousness sustains man. This deliverance is entirely of God. God accomplishes the salvation and he sustains us until the end. To quote Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The book of Isaiah is replete with military imagery. All throughout the book, the Israelites are pursued by their physical enemies and now their enemy, the greatest enemy of all, is sin. Sin is more powerful than the most powerful armies on earth. And so in his unshakable covenant love, Yahweh's action is to come to our hell-infested land ready to war against sin and he comes dressed for the battle. He puts on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the garments of vengeance, the cloak of zeal, which is his jealous wrath against his enemies as he fights for and defends his precious people. There is no worse news for Yahweh's enemies. But there is no better news for Yahweh's people. The almighty God takes it upon himself to war against his enemies. And in his jealous wrath, he destroys his enemies all the way to the coastlands. As verse 18 declares, he will repay his enemies in his furious anger. That's what's reserved for the enemies of God. Remember, this prophecy was made hundreds of years before Christ came to earth. And yet Isaiah prophesied as if this redemption was a done deal. The Israelites knew enemies. From Assyria, from Babylon, from the nations. And now they recognize sin, their greatest enemy of all, which remains our common foe to this day. These words were aimed to bolster Israel's confidence in Yahweh's coming salvation over their greatest enemy of all. And yet as as Israel rejoiced in this redemption anticipated, how much more do you and I have reason to rejoice in this redemption accomplished? Just a few hundred years after this prophecy was made, it came true. Yahweh would come to this sinful earth and clothe himself in humility. He would enter our world as one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He would take our sin upon himself. With such jealous love for his people, that he would take even our death upon himself. And then he conquered the grave. And being risen from the dead, he expelled our sin as far as the east is from the west. You can run the world a hundred times over and you will never at any point find any of the redeemed of God with their sins held against them. To the coastlands, our sin is swept away in Christ's victory. Glory to God alone. And in his resurrection, people shall fear his name from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun from the rising of the sun to its setting, make no mistake, Yahweh will have the victory and all people will fear his name throughout the earth. So much greater than man's sin is, Yahweh's victory reigns. He has come. He has come, driven by the wind, or the spirit of Yahweh. And in his victory, every single one of his enemies will be repaid By his furious anger. Weary sinner. Would you run to the refuge in the rock of Christ? His victory is coming on behalf of your sin. And now for each and every one of your sins, his salvation is coming. He did away with the penalty of your sin on the cross. And he will one day do away with the presence of your sin in the new heavens and the new earth. Now we fight with indwelling sin, but in him our victory is come. And in verse 20, we see that Yahweh's redemption comes to those who repent. He has come to rescue those who turn away from transgression. Paul uses this verse in Romans eleven twenty six to imply that even repentance itself is an effect of the Redeemer's saving work. Upon first reading, we might think that this victory is somehow dependent upon our repentance. Like somehow the Redeemer's victory is conditional upon whether or not people repent. Now lest we be mistaken, there is no salvation without repentance, but according to Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of this verse, repentance is an act and a gift of Yahweh's divine grace by which those who repent are beneficiaries of the Redeemer's saving work. He leaves nothing up to us because in our own hearts, even our repentance is imperfect. He leaves nothing up to us. Part of his bringing salvation is also his bringing repentance to his people. And so we're reminded that there is nothing, including repentance, that's left to us. Yahweh's redemption over sin's ruin which includes repentance, is based entirely upon his victory, which gives us unshakable ground for assurance and rest. Would you marvel with me at the heart of God, who though we have turned from him and are rendered absolutely helpless of any deliverance on our own, would conquer our sin and come to us in our helplessness simply because of his mercy and due to no merit whatsoever of our own. Our sins have separated us from God and have hidden his face from us. And then in such a glorious act of divine love, as Christ was suffering on the cross for our sins, gasping his dying breaths, the father turned his face away from his own son who became sin for us. Our separation has been conquered by God himself. And so now there is no penalty left for our sin. Christ paid for it entirely. And in him, we are saved to the uttermost. We don't have to fear the Father's rejection because Christ, once-for-all forsakenness has secured our eternal acceptance. Verse 21 is a rich conclusion to this passage. In light of Yahweh's victory over our sin, He guarantees that his covenant, sealed by his spirit, will be with his people forever. All of God's people for all time are included in this promise that will be from this time forth and forevermore. This is a sure and steady anchor for our soul. We were drowned in the depth of sin with no hope of salvation in and of ourselves. No man was able to accomplish the intercession that we desperately needed. And then God, while we were in the depths of our sin, brought salvation with his own arm. Christ came and wore the full armor of God. And because of that, we gladly wear it upon ourselves as we battle against the indwelling sin remaining in our souls. Confident. It's not going to conquer. As we see all throughout Isaiah 59, sin's ruin is great. But Yahweh's redemption is so much greater. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have yet to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. You know that your sins have separated you from God and you're tired of running from him, rebelling against him, and awaiting the wrath that your sins deserve. Friend, there is hope for you in Christ. So, Despite the depth of your sin, Yahweh's redemption is for you if you repent and believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection today. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're weary from the weight of your indwelling sin, like I am, that clings so closely to our souls as we run this race of life. There is a fountain of strength to be found in recognizing Yahweh's great redemption over sin's great ruin. Recognize your sin, confess it, repent of it, and rejoice in your conquering Savior. May all of us drink deeply of the spiritual joy and strength to be found at the well of Isaiah 59. This time I'd like to ask the worship team to return as we prepare to close. John Newton, the famous 18th century English pastor and writer of many hymns, including Amazing Grace, captured the heart of Isaiah 59's essential truth, in one of his letters to a companion. Enjoy this, brothers and sisters. You have one hard lesson to learn, that is the evil of your own heart. You know something of it, but it is needful that you should know more. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus and his salvation. I hope what you find in yourself by daily experience will humble you, but not discourage you. Humble you it should, and I believe it does. Are you not amazed Sometimes that you, that, that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinketh of you. But let not all that you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts out none that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but He is power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. All of these evils will not be removed in a day. Wait on the Lord, and He will enable you to see more and more the power and grace of our high priest. Sin's ruin is greater, but Yahweh's redemption is greater. Our sins are many. His mercy is more.
1: Amen. Amen. So thoroughly encouraged, church. <laughs> Amen. I um, just want to read a passage from Ephesians 6, just going in line with taking up the armor of God. For we know that we are not ignorant to the schemes of the devil, I know that for me, I'm tempted often after hearing God's truth because there's a a prowling and roaring lion seeking to devour. So let us not be ignorant to the schemes of the devil, but let us take heart. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Christ Community Church, may me uh, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might this week. As we seek to continue to wage good warfare, remember our covenant-keeping God, whose redemption has given us all that we need uh, for this life and the next. Pray that you'd be blessed in Jesus Christ. Enjoy your Sunday. Amen.